large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed Jesus. And when he saw them, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Thank you, Hannah. Welcome, everybody. Last week, we started in this new series on the Sermon on the Mount, which if that's a phrase you don't know or you weren't here last week, it'll make sense in a minute. But we started and ended our, our talk last Wednesday night talking about those indelible images coming out of Afghanistan, remember? We were asking the question, what kind of people in Kabul left everything to rush the airport and put their life at risk to grab onto a plane? And we said, well, probably people who were so scared of the kingdom and the reign of the Taliban that was coming, and so hopeful that that plane could get them out of that kingdom and into another kingdom. But we also talked about the problem with those planes and the problems with the kingdoms that you and I look to for meaning, for identity, for purpose, for peace, for calm, don't have hands and can't grab back which is the problem with those people who grabbed onto the plane. The plane couldn't hold them back, and so they fell off. So what, what's, what we're going to look at in just a few minutes is Jesus describing what the people and the character and the culture of this kingdom that he's building are like. So Hannah read the passage, but let's pray, and we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, uh, last week we read of you going around all of Israel proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And you were healing people and you were receiving people. And uh, my prayer for us tonight is that you would even visit us and proclaim the good news of your kingdom. Make a stop in this room tonight with these people gathered, with our friends and give us ears to hear you speak. Give us eyes to see you as you are. Give us a heart to have faith in you. All of these things are things we cannot do on our own. We are poor and needy, but you are rich and gracious. So hear this prayer we pray in your name. Amen. Things are always different on the inside than how they appear from the outside. And that's why there's a genre of stories, documentaries, books that's always best-selling and goes viral. And it's the insider account genre. And it happens in all different kinds of places. So uh, in the past year, there's been a ton of people who used to work in the Trump White House publishing these like tell-all books where they're kind of spilling the beans about what he's like to work with, what it was like in his White House, uh, probably most of you in the room, if not everybody, saw uh, Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah, uh, I guess earlier this summer or late spring, and they, these insiders from inside the kingdom and inside the royal family, sat down and told us what it's like. And nobody would have watched that if it was some like expert on the royal family with a PhD. Nobody would tune in. 
But the reason we're so fascinated by these insider accounts is because they're insider accounts. Uh, last year during the pandemic, what was going viral was The Last Dance, the documentary of the 1990 Chicago Bulls when they were winning six or seven championships, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and that was an insider account. What was it really like to be in that dynasty, in that little kingdom? What was it like to play with Jordan or to be in, you know, him and Pitt, uh, Scottie Pippen's shadow in all these interviews with these folks telling us that? I, I was thinking about it, like, why are these things so fascinating, these insider accounts? Kind of pulling back the curtains, letting us peek in. Part of it is because we can't see inside, and so it's like really exciting to get that little bit of gossip where you're like, whoa, that's really what it's like. But it's especially interesting when what's described about the inside is really different than the way we thought it was. Like the Harry and Meghan interview, you were like, what? That's what the queen is like? Like Prince Charles said, what? And the, the last dance, we're hearing these things and there's this huge chasm between the way all of us thought it was and the way it actually is from the insider's perspectives. So if all of this is true, it means that if we're paying attention to what Hannah read a minute ago, which is called the Beatitudes in the Bible or the blessings or the good sayings, uh, if this is all true, it means that that should fascinate us because the rule holds true. It's an insider account. You don't get more insider than Jesus the king, Jesus who claims to be God, the king of this new kingdom we're talking about. And it's fascinating because the description that he gives us of what the people in the kingdom are like, and therefore what the culture of the kingdom of God is like, uh, is very, very different than how all of us would think. Um, this is a, these are words that no mere human could or would write. No way. And I wanna help you appreciate how out of left field this stuff is and how shocking it is so that we can enter into this passage and appreciate its significance for us. But this is really counterintuitive to how people think about Christians or disciples. A quick caveat. In these verses, Jesus isn't describing what you need to be like to be right with God. Get that clear. He's describing what you are like if you're already right with God. This is the culture of the transformed, of the new. Okay, so that's what he's describing, but his description doesn't seem to line up with conventional wisdom. And it's not just because you know from personal experience what you or your friends think about Christians, but it's also what, I mean, you see the same headlines I do about all these polls and surveys since you've been alive that have been saying, if you polled UGA or UNG community and you said, what are people who take Jesus really, really serious, what are they like? And it's huge majorities, they're hypocrites, they're intolerant, they're not thinking people, uh, they're not very gracious or understanding or empathetic people, and on and on and on, right? 
That's the conventional wisdom about what disciples of Jesus, the people who take him seriously, Team Jesus, that's what comes to mind in just, in most people's minds, is that description. But Jesus here is pulling the curtains back and saying from an insider's perspective, this is what people that I've made alive, people who know me, people who are living in grace, this is what they are like. And then he starts saying this crazy stuff like this. They're spiritually poor. They have insufficient funds in their account. They can't pay their moral or ethical bills. They keep bouncing relational checks because there's just not money, there's not goodness, there's not righteousness in and of themselves there to pull from. They're bankrupt spiritually. And remember, Jesus is describing people who are his, who are made new, who are in this kingdom, who've received this kingdom. And then he goes on and he says, they're people who mourn the huge chasm between what they're presently like and what God's making them like. There's a mourning that goes on of like, I wish I was more patient. I want to be more patient. Oh, I cannot wait for the day that I I have the self-control to say no to that desire. And they mourn that, and they mourn the, the stuff going on around them in the world. And then he goes on and he says, they're meek, they're gentle and humble people, and they're hungry. And I'm telling you, that's not how even we, I don't care if you grew up in the church, especially American Christians, this is not how we think about the family of God or what it truly means if you could x-ray the soul of someone who is really alive in Jesus and knows him and has received his grace. Um, I think this isn't just, this is how people out there would describe um, or would write it if they were saying, "What, what would you describe the insiders of the kingdom of God like? I think even most American Christians would describe it this way too. And this is our problem. I think most American Christians And most people who aren't Christians, if they had to describe what is this kingdom that Jesus has come, like who are the people who are really crushing it in this kingdom, who get it? This is what we would describe, is it not? Blessed are the self-reliant, the self-assured, the self-helped, the self-actualized, the self-confident, the self-satisfied, the self-made. For theirs is the kingdom. Those are the people who get it. Those are the people who are serious. Those are the people who've kind of conquered the demons inside of them and are really walking with the Lord. Those are the people who get the prize. And the reason that sounds as familiar to you as it does is because all of us like have a dual citizenship in the kingdom of self as well. It's our native language, our native culture, and we know it oh so well. We like get-it-done people. We like kind of let's-go, high-achievers, over-achievers, make-it-happen kind of people, right? Don't you want to be that kind of person? Don't you want other people to look at you as someone who can get it done? That's the kingdom of self. The self-reliant, the self-help, the self-assured, the self-confident, the self-made. And that's not just the culture out around us, it's the culture inside of us, too. And it's what makes these Beatitudes so counterintuitive and so like, wait a minute, Jesus, come again? Like the first descriptor 
of true Christians is they're spiritually bankrupt? Like, do I have the right rabbi? And he says, yes, that's the descriptor. Again, the kingdom of self, it's so saturated in us. This is why, like, we think we like to help people in need, but not people who are really in need. Um, It's easy for all of us to go pick up our roommate when his car breaks down, but when you're still driving him around three weeks later to every appointment and every class, nobody's cool with that, right? Like, everybody's been out of shape about that, and like, I mean, get your stuff together, dude. Like, Uber, get a car, whatever, get a job. We don't like weakness. I think it shows up in the songs we sing when we get together as Christians to worship. Our songs, there's a lot of songs that just are projecting strength to God and strength to other people. And it's a litany of all the things I believe about God or I'm going to do for God or that I want to feel for God. And that's so, so different than the way the church has worshipped for the previous 1,800 years where we're singing about our great God and all that he feels towards us and that he's done towards us in Jesus. Friends, you and I have a a PhD. We've been discipled in strong Christianity and it's one of the biggest problems you and I face and have because that is fundamentally incompatible with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it will mean all of his words go right over your head in one ear and always out the other. And it'll mean that even this community is less and less reflective of the heart and the character and the mind of Jesus and more and more reflective of our country or our city or our culture. This is what's on the line. So here's the deal, back to the passage. Um, Last week where we ended, Jesus was getting really, really, really famous. He's a celebrity pastor by the point Uh, that we picked up in verse 25 of chapter 4. Large crowds from all these cities you don't know about, but they're all the surrounding cities. So that would be like when people from Atlanta start coming to Athens to hear someone, and Greenville, and Chattanooga, you know they're a big deal. Like huge concert when people are driving that far to get there. Jesus has attracted a big crowd, and it's mixed motives of why they're following him. I'm sure some people, there was sincerity of heart. I believe that this is more than just a medicine man or a, you know, a witch doctor that can heal my epilepsy. But I really believe that he is God and and he's here to save me. But I bet most people were other motivations like, man, this guy's checking all my boxes. He's strong. He's making it happen. Let's get it done. Look at him. From one miracle to the next, to the next, to the next, he's crushing it. I want in on this kingdom. And so Jesus does next what no celebrity pastor has ever done or ever would dare do. He says, adios, y'all, peace out, and he leaves. This adoring crowd that was growing by the hour, just word of mouth viral, and Jesus says, "Um, I got somewhere else to be, and he leaves what's probably thousands and thousands of clamoring crowds, and he goes with 12 other men up a mountain. And he opens his mouth and he begins to talk and teach. And they begin to listen. And again, what he said is blessed, or you could take that to mean happy, or carefree, or the lucky ones in the kingdom are the spiritually poor, or the poor in spirit. And he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which means 
only theirs. Do you want to know who, if we could phrase it this way, who gets into the kingdom of heaven? It's those who know I need Jesus' pass to get in here because I got no credential hanging around my neck that's going to get me anywhere. That's who the kingdom belongs to, the poor, who out of desperation and emptiness in themselves have begun to look to another, have run for the airport, and have grabbed on to the one who can grab back. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed, happy, truly happy. Lucky are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they won't hunger and thirst forever. They will be filled. That's the insider account. Let's just take each of these for a few minutes apiece, and we'll call it a night. Verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I've already been alluding to it a lot, but he's basically saying blessed are the spiritually helpless and the weak and the spiritually high maintenance. Blessed are them. They're the insiders. They're the ones I've come for. And I would add to this, and I think a lot of people who study this passage would add to this, those with a self-awareness of their poverty. There's a lot of people in Kabul who didn't run for the airport who should be running for the airport but aren't for whatever reasons. They're naive and they believe the Taliban's going to be all sweet and nice this time around. Or for whatever other reason, they're like, I got a business here. I'm not leaving the business. I got crops to harvest. I'm not leaving that. Those who understand and apprehend that they lack the very thing God requires, which is, which is true love for God and true love for other people which is holiness, which is being right and clean. And so, like I said earlier, they've begun to seeing their crooked heart, longing for someone's heart who's not crooked, who got it right, who would share that with them. So they're aware that even all the way down to their desires and motivations, they're not right, they're bankrupt, they don't have the funds, the potential, or the promise to ever impress God with their little song and dance of how good I've been this week or how good I've been this month or all the stuff I haven't done that my roommate's done. Instead, they have begun to approach God as humble beggars, panhandlers. They've accepted the fact that they're high maintenance and that self-realization has not kept them far from God, but it's driven them to God. Now, here's the thing. This is simultaneously to my ears the best news ever and some of the hardest news ever. What about your ears? The reason it's the best news is because I know I need this. I mean, I remember, um, I remember the first several years of college where I believed the kingdom of strength and I thought that's what Christianity was and I felt just so crushed all the time. You know what I did? The more and more I realized my spiritual poverty, the more and more I pushed it down and hid more and didn't talk about it. And the better I got at slipper, like just kind of making my way out of any question anybody asked me to make sure they wouldn't see what was really there. I got better and better at hiding and pretending and posturing, better and better in kind of lifting myself up out of the muck and saying, well, I'm not that bad. And so I need this because it's the thing that lifted the burden off my back. It's the first time I heard good 
news that God is a God for the poor and the weak and the helpless and the bankrupt who blew their money on all the wrong things. Um, But I also don't like it because I don't like asking for help. I don't like being a burden on people. I don't like being high maintenance. I mean, that's one of the worst things. You, if I heard third hand that you thought I was high maintenance, I would just shrivel up. I'd be like, oh no, that's my biggest nightmare. And I don't want you to feel that way about me, and I don't, want, I don't want to feel high maintenance to God. I don't want to ask for help. I want to say, could I just get some advice to kind of fix the problem? Can I like call tech support and say, hey, what do I do with this weird situation? I'm getting this error code. Oh, thanks. Now I'm back on track. That's what I want to do. And God is not a God who plays ball with that. So you've heard me say before that God is a God who meets you on your turf, but his terms. Your turf is good news. It's wherever you are. Is this all going over your head right now? You're like, did I miss an episode? Like, what is he talking about? The good news is God is alive, and he will meet you in that place of confusion right now. Ask him. It also means if you're hungry, desperate, you're feeling that poverty, and this is great news. God is meeting you in that right now, but he's going to meet you on his terms, which is this, mercy. Put your wallet away and shred all the money in it, and he's non-negotiable. He's not into doing transactions. Wait a minute, how about a little bit of money, a little bit of probation, a little bit of time, a little bit of community service? No, he's like, my terms are non-negotiable. You come to me, it's free. You come to me, it's by the merit and the grace of my son Jesus who worked on your behalf and who loved on your behalf and died on your behalf. But again, do you feel like you don't like to ask people for help or feel high maintenance or need them in a, in a messy kind of needy way? This is where this bumps up against the other kingdoms that we're a part of. And this is what's amazing because Jesus is describing not just like internally disturbed people, but he's describing his sons and daughters who he has resurrected by grace. Other, you can call it a lot of things, Christians, people that have put their faith in him, whatever. But Jesus is describing people who have come to him. There's a way in which your spiritual poverty can keep you far from Jesus. And it's called navel-gazing. And it's called self-help. Uh, or it's called thinking that another night downtown of forgetting all of your, your woes, uh, what, it's self-salvation. Or it's, it's being so in despair because you think there's no hope for salvation. And those people can be very aware of their spiritual poverty, but they're not aware of Jesus, who is rich and loves to share his righteousness. And so it's not exercising faith in him. It's not listening to him. It's not looking to him. It's just looking at me and at me and at me. And um, if you ever, if, if that's you and you want to talk to someone about it, I have a black belt in that, unfortunately, and the scars to prove it. And it's kept me far from my God and my Savior too often. But Jesus is a God. He's a king who says, I resist the proud, but I give grace and grace and grace and grace to the humble. The only God who exists is a God who says the sacrifices that are acceptable to me is a broken and contrite spirit. In other words, humility and abandonment of trying to impress me and a willingness to be impressed 
with the sacrifice I've put forward on your behalf, whose name is Jesus. I've told you all this before, and I will never apologize for quoting him every three or four sermons, old Puritan pastor Samuel Rutherford, who said, my needs are my greatest riches, for it is they that bring me to Christ. Who doesn't come to this kingdom? Who doesn't run to the airport? We've already said it. I mean, people who are kind of acclimated to the dark kingdoms. People who self-consciously or unconsciously prefer the kingdom of self. They're like, what's wrong with all the self-reliance, self-help, self-made, self-confident, self-assured, self-satisfied? Like, you just described my ideal week. Those people aren't coming to Jesus either. Um, And you may be someone who calls yourself a Christian, but if that describes the the normal posture of your heart, um, hear Jesus call you to himself because you don't know him. He's fundamentally different than that. Who doesn't come to the kingdom? Those who think they're killing it all by themselves. They're proud and they're arrogant. C.S. Lewis said, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, however, are in that danger. Tim Keller adds, there's two ways to live. Be your own savior or let Jesus be your savior. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, hear him see your weakness and your poverty that you know good and well as their friends. I'm not beating up on you. I'm trying to hold out an olive branch and say, I know you feel this about yourself. God sees that and he says, "Um, because of what I've done in Jesus, you can come poor. You think you've got to go earn money and get all these side jobs to build up credit to come to me, but that's not the way it works. Come to me poor. I give money without price. I give mercy when it's not deserved. Jesus goes on, and we'll be a little quicker on these other ones, but he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Here's what he's talking about. Well, what he's not talking about is just a generic that um, God comforts us anytime we mourn. I mean, you might be really sad that the dogs are probably going to lose a big game. Spoiler alert, (laughs) it happens every year. You might be really bent out of shape about that, and you're like, but Jesus comforts me in my mourning. Not what he's talking about here. God is near to the brokenhearted, so maybe that applies. Jesus is saying, Wouldn't, don't you imagine that people who are spiritually poor in the way that I've been describing mourn the way that they are? Don't you, wouldn't it make sense that they mourn the disparity between what's still true of them that they wish wasn't, and where they want to be. Like, they really do want to love people well. They really do want to um, steward their time well, but they keep wasting their time like me with all these other peripheral things. And there's that mourning over like, this is still me. God, I know you're changing me. I know you're growing me, but I mourn the lack of what I am. I want to be like you. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. And any time there's a deviation for that, the true disciple of Jesus feels some degree of mourning over that, and not just about your own sin and lack and poverty, but other people's too. This is a very different attitude. For example, uh, taking a loop downtown on a Friday night or down Millage, uh, and, a, and a religious heart, a heart that does not know Jesus, uh, it walks down that road and says, look at all these people. This is, I cannot believe 
how out of control these people are. But a heart that mourns and is meek looks at those people and it, and it feels sad there. Not, not like a condescending, I feel so sorry for you, but a, but a sadness because you see a little piece of yourself in them. You're like, look how deceived we all are thinking that a 12-ounce bottle can replicate the living God of the universe. And it, and it breaks your heart. The way Jesus stood over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings, but you would not come to me. That's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. It's mourning the injustice that you see in our city, in our world. It's, it's being legitimately sad um, when one of your friends makes a racist joke or an insensitive joke, and you're like, that's not okay. And you're not like being all judgmental about them, but you're like, this breaks my heart because it's not a victimless crime. Somebody's going to pay for that comment. Somebody's going to be hurt by that. It's mourning the stuff that's going on in the world. It's watching the news with tears coming down your eyes because God watches the news, as it were, with tears coming down his eyes, saying, I know it was never supposed to be this way. Blessed are those who mourn. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is really just a realistic view of yourself. It's not an overinflated view. I think we've covered that, right? But it's also not an underinflated view. Woe is me, I'm such a worm. I'm so worthless. How could God love me? That's uh, narcissism, that's self-focus, right? It's like me, 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 navel, 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 gaze. But meekness is a, it's a sober, realistic view of yourself, both as a poor sinner in need of the mercy of God and, hear me, as a recipient of a lavish God's grace and love. Take one of those away and you lose meekness. Meekness is this double-visioned awareness of who I am and all I'm not and who he is and all of who he is. And that's why it's not self-hatred, it's not beating yourself up, it's not obsessively focusing on all that's wrong with you, uh, but it's also being aware of those things in light of God's mercy. And it makes you a fundamentally approachable person. We'll talk more about this next week, but um, to my depressed friends in the room, I think you've probably learned by now who are the easiest and most refreshing people to talk to in the midst of the dark valley you're in. Other depressed people or people who remember the valley and are on the other side now. Do you have a nasty breakup this summer? You know who the easiest, most helpful people to talk to are. Um, your friend who's never dated might be awesome, maybe a wonderful person, but you don't go to her. You go to the one who had a nasty breakup because there's empathy, there's humility. They don't try to just leap onto your problem and fix it all, but they, they sit there with you. They feel it with you. That's meekness. Blessed are the meek for they will receive the earth. Lastly, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Grace gives you a huge appetite for more of God. Grace gives you a huge appetite for more of God. I want more of him. Um, I want to be more confident in the righteousness that he's already applied to me when he justified me. I, I want to believe that down on my bones. I want to be right more and more. I want to love more and more. I want to follow him more and more. I want to see righteousness in my generation, in my moment, in my city, blossoming. I want to see righteousness 
you know your heart is aligned with God because God loves righteousness and is righteous. So I want to end with some application depending on where you are with this stuff. For some of us, um, you don't really know where you are with this. Maybe it was a little bit confusing. Um, I just want to, I want to leave you with this thought experiment. Um, I want you to think about this. You can tell a lot about a king based on the people who are insiders in his kingdom. You can learn a lot about Jeff Bezos by looking at the average Amazon worker and saying, who's blessed in his kingdom? The overworked, the 16 hour days, like I saw a delivery man today when I was getting lunch, like race in, use the bathroom, race out and peel out because he's trying to meet his quota. Blessed are the back-breakingly overworked. You can tell a lot about celebrities, their little inner culture, who made it to the inner ring, the beautiful people, the rich people. My question to you, friends, if you don't know where you are with Jesus, is what can you learn about Jesus based on who he's made space, who he's made space for? The weak, those who don't measure up, those who don't have what it takes but are looking to him. And ask yourself, then why can't you come to him? What's holding you back? For those who know him, can this be a reminder to you that you get to bring real you, you get to bring your weakness to your God, and he joyfully receives it? He's in, he's in on, the, on the joke. Like He understands you're weak. What would it look like for you in the coming week to actually make a plan to bring your weakness to Jesus and to talk to him about it and not posture, not pretend, not deny it, not say, look over here, Jesus, so you can hide this, but, but to start talking to him about what you lack. Why don't we end there? Let's pray that Jesus would make this true of us in our hearts. Lord Jesus, again, we say it every week, but the best news of all is that you are the living God. These are not dead words on a page that we just have to go home to and find a way to drill into our hearts and minds. But by your spirit, you are working them into us. Give us the grace to pay attention to what we've heard tonight, to, to remember it. But, we, but I pray more than anything that you would show yourself as an approachable savior to weak sinners in the room that they would hear tonight as a homecoming, as homecoming for them and saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and I'll give you grace, and I'll give you life. We pray this in your name. Amen.